Hey, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark Gagne, here with Trevor Clifford. How are you feeling today, Trevor? Feeling pretty good. I feel like a bark a lounger that Dave Chappelle is sitting on. <laughs> are you going to ask me how I'm feeling? <laughs> yeah, how you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling good. You know, I, I feel like uh, I feel like Pikachu in a Tesla right now. Damn. Ghost riding. Can Pikachu power his own Tesla? I would hope so. I would hope so, too. Here we are in another podcast, um, but the rules of the game are me and Mark are big book freaks, and we're here to talk to you today. He has one book that he's going to talk about. I may or may not have read it, but I don't know what it is right now. I have a book that he may or may not have read, and I'm going to talk about it right now. Um, how's it going, Mark? Good. So, I'm obsessed with Super Smash Brothers. Obsessed. <laughs> Game's good. Yeah, new Super Smash <laughs> came out for Nintendo Switch, and uh, you've been playing like crazy. Yeah, I have this like and- you know my syndrome with Switch games. I just I can't pay full price for them. I have like a mental block about it. Um, who knows? Yeah, yeah. This one's worth it though. I don't know. <laughs> no, I believe I feel you. Like I've already got my money's worth. Yeah, I believe you for sure. Um. So uh, about two episodes ago, in the second episode, we established that Mark is really good at coming up with games. So uh, we're going to start out <laughs> with a game before we get to either of our books. Uh, what What did you think about this week? All right. So I yeah, I came up with something new. Um, I'm either going to call it, I mean, call it real or fake, but some book pun related name would be uh, plot or not. You know, same kind of thing. <laughs> plot or not. <laughs> Welcome to yeah, Plot so, or Not. Yeah, so I was thinking this could be something we could uh, do a bunch of different times because uh, essentially what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a bunch of plot summaries. Mm-hmm. And this week I chose the genre of uh, romance novels. All right. So I've got, <laughs> I got, I got seven plot summaries here. Those could be anything. And they could literally be anything. <laughs> so you've got to guess if they're real or if it's something that I came up with, and I'm gonna keep track of the score. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> plot or not? So far, my two favorite are this and the. Uh, well, I don't know how this is gonna go, but that and the uh, the six word one. I like the six word one. We yeah, gotta come up one, with a snappy name for six. Maybe we should just call it baby shoes or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Flash fiction. Okay, so you ready? I'm ready. So you didn't have to prep anything for this week. I, I put in some work. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, first one. After their secret marriage ended in heartbreak, billionaire Travis Sanders never wanted to see Imogen again. Yet when Imogen faints in the cold New York snow, Travis is called to her very public rescue. To avoid a media scandal, they must agree to a temporary reconciliation, at least until Christmas. But with their intense heat still burning, <laughs> Travis is tempted to reclaim his wife for good. Okay, wait, go over one more time the thing that happened to her that they can't let anyone know. What happened to her? <laughs> well, their secret, their secret marriage ended in heartbreak, and then she faints in the cold New York snow. Oh, so he goes to her. Okay, okay, okay. Um, I think that that is real, and I'll tell you why. Because I don't think that you would have come up with the line, before Christmas. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I think that, that that was my favorite part where it was like, at least we have to hold off everything about our romantic relationship until Christmas. So I think that that's real. Yeah, I'm intrigued. So yes, you're right. That's real. Okay. <laughs> the book is called, <laughs> the book's called Claiming His Christmas Wife. Ooh, is that like an Amazon self-publish, or where did you mine out? Yeah, these? Uh, I went. I went through the Kindle store for for most of these. Mm-hmm. There's so much that like that whole area of Amazon is really interesting because there. I think there are authors out there publishing erotic stuff that they make like money. Like so I yeah, think some yeah. of the biggest Amazon self-published marketplaces, like a bunch of people writing erotica, which is sort of yeah. There's enough like reviews on all these things that people are buying it. But mm-hmm. okay, you're off to a good start. Uh, all right, number two. Right. They shared a sizzling festive fling. Then alluring paramedic Callie turns up on committed bachelor and firefighter Ben's doorstep, pregnant. <laughs> That's the whole thing? Yep. All right. I think that that one is real, too. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, that one's real, too. Firefighter's (laughs) Christmas Baby. (laughs) Pregnant. By Annie Clayton. (laughs) Firefighter's Christmas Baby, that's what it's called? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I want it to just be called called pregnant with an exclamation mark. (laughs) Okay. All right. Number three. Uh, Rachel has just left her love at the altar. Broken homeless, she ventures to make a new name for herself in the big city. With the help of a long-lost friend, she begins a new career and renews her search for true love. Uh, that one's so generic. You didn't throw any curveballs in there if you wrote that, so I think it's real, too. <laughs> that one's fake. That is actually um, the pilot to the show Friends. Oh, did you, still, <laughs> did you take that copy, or did you just... No, I just kept like uh, yeah, Rachel. Yeah, Rachel. Yeah, Rachel shows up with the uh, wedding dress or whatever. <laughs> so I made a name for that one. That's the one where it all began. So you know how all their episodes. Yeah, start the, with one the one where it all began. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, you're two and two and one right now. All right, number four. Houston, we have a hot astronaut problem. Survival expert and control freak Jesse O'Dell has faced the most hazardous environments on Earth. Training astronauts should be a cakewalk. Nope. Enter candidate Hemi Thor Barrett and his hot ripped bod, and suddenly Jesse is breathless with raw excitement, something she hasn't felt for a long, long time, and it scares her to death. Real? <laughs> yeah, that's real. That's um, Pushing the Limits, uh, Space Cowboys number 926. 926 there's no way that there's 900 are they they novel size or short stories uh they were all like 200 pages 926 200 page (laughs) stories about space erotic space cowboys i think so shit all right all right yeah you're doing good all right um uh number five after widow Carmen Oleander discovers and inherits her late husband's mafia debt, the only option is to enter their fold as a contract killer. With the irresistible detective Ronan Fox hot on her tail, can Carmen ever recover the life she once had? Mm-hmm. I think you wrote that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that one's fake. I made that up, but I'm thinking I should make that for real. I think it's got legs. <laughs> okay. Yeah, go for it. You're going to become it. Amazon number one. 
Amazon number one. All right. Erotic writer. You're, uh, you're four and one right now. So this is the last one? Uh, I got two more. Two more. Okay. 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 Where there's a will, there's murder. When the butlers gather for the Christmas reading of their murdered father's will, tracker Rory Scott is focused on finding the killer targeting his ex, Cadence Butler. He's shocked to find the ranch heiress pregnant with his twins. Wild spirit Rory has never done love, but keeping Cadence safe on the run threatens to tame his untamable heart. Real. Yeah, that's real. (laughs) That's bulletproof 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 Christmas. Crisis Cattle Barge, book six. These are all on the top of the list at the moment because Christmas is coming. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole bunch of, like, collections and stuff. Which is really... That's actually something really interesting. Like, you know, it goes all the way down to people buying erotic fiction, but, like, times of the year. You know, like, don't you like reading something that lines up with the time of year that you're in? Yeah. That works for me. I I don't read Christmas stuff around Christmas, but... I free yeah I mean I don't really do but I read I I think it's more seasonal like I do winter stuff like sometimes if it's cold and wintry I want to read like Dostoevsky and just be pissed off yeah I could see that <laughs> um yeah okay next okay. one I got one more you're okay. five and one right now I already won <laughs> yeah um, Lola Easter and Harriet Dunn have been best friends since childhood. After a chance meeting with the mysterious millionaire Michael Swanson visiting the East Coast for business, Lola falls head over heels in love. When Michael leaves behind an important piece of luggage on his return to his daily life, Lola sees this as a sign and sets out across the country with Harriet to return the briefcase and take a chance at finding love. Could the content, contents of the case hold the key to true happiness? Dude, that's the plot of Dumb and Dumber. Whoever wrote that, that's <laughs> Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, I wrote that shit. You did? Gender, <laughs> yeah. Gender switch, uh, I, dumb and dumber. Yeah. <laughs> so, is that what you actually I did? I I picked it. No, yeah, that's what I did. Damn. <laughs> I gave it away, but I guess I could cheat and say that since I made it, it is real. Yeah. But no, you you all right? You went six and one. I couldn't stump you. I I got to do a better job next six time. Six and one. Okay, so we're gonna return. We're gonna <laughs> Lola, return. Lola Easter. Lola, Lola Easter. Easter for Lloyd Christmas. <laughs> And Harriet Dunn. Harriet oh, Dunn. wait, wait. I didn't even realize that Lola Easter. Jesus. Yeah. You did do your homework. But I still picked it up. Dude, yeah. to the, to this day, I ha- I'm so happy. I have a um, I have a, a little rolly suitcase that I bring to airports and such. And it's a Samsonite, and I love it so much. Because nice. every time I see it, I'm like, slippy, slappy, sweat, swan, sweat, sweat, Samsonite? Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god, that that movie is just tops. Um, yeah. Okay, so we'll definitely return to plot or not because I want to stump you with plot or not. So. Okay, you could do sci-fi um, or something. Plot or not. I'm writing that down so I can start thinking about it. Right. <laughs> so you you went first last time. Is that is that the truth? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna go first this time. Um, and we'll dive right into it. Me and Mark each have a book that we're going to discuss. Um, sometimes we do pretty spoilery plot details. Um, I'm not really. I don't really drop any spoilers. I just gush over how good books are. So um, I'll go right into it. Um, so the book that I'm doing um, is pretty pro- appropriate for me. Um, 
I just moved out to California, so I drove across the country, but also uh, now I'm out in, in sunny California, and what better writer to talk about California than John Steinbeck? And I am doing John nice. Steinbeck's, er, one of his early books um, from 1935, Tortilla Flat. Have you heard of this book? Oh, Yeah. I've read so much of his, and I have not read that, so I'm excited. <laughs> I'm dodging the one hole in your Stein. Yeah, I was knowledge. waiting for you to say something else. Yeah, well, Grapes, <laughs> I know you're a big Grapes of Wrath fan, and I actually just picked up a new... My co- my first copy of Grapes of Wrath was great, but unreadable, because it was falling apart. So um, I just picked up a fresh-spined Grapes of Wrath, which I'm going to read in earnest for the first time, which is going to be fun. Nice. Yeah, they should have made us read that in school. Um, I think we took the classes that the, we weren't the advanced kids, Mark. <laughs> Mark. Uh, damn. <laughs> There's, I think there was an English class where you had to read a lot more than we did, but we had uh, Susla. So, yeah, uh, oh, wow. our our famous high school English teacher, Mr. Susla, infamous yeah, at this point. Knows. Um, so I'm talking about Tortilla Flat by John Steinbeck. This book was published in 1935. Um, to give you sort of a quick um, kind of overview of where it sits in Steinbeck's life. I'm just going to read a little bit for the introduction. Uh, starting at the introduction. If we can match a novelist with a locale, John Steinbeck will forever be linked with Monterey, California and Monterey Bay, the site of three of his most famous novels, Tortilla Flat, Cannery Row, and its sequel, Sweet Thursday and his subsequent portrait of his friend Ed Ricketts in The Log from the Sea of Cortez. Although Steinbeck was born in Salinas, his family owned a home in Pacific Grove in the Monterey area, and Steinbeck was often there, captivated by the mix of humanity and Canary Row, fascinated by the sea, and captured by marine biology. Steinbeck attended Stanford University intermittently from 1919 through 1925, six years, and although he never did receive a degree, he benefited from courses in English and marine biology. He worked at various times as a winter caretaker for an estate in the Lake Tahoe area, as a lab technician in Spreckles Sugar Plants, as a laborer building the original Madison Square Garden in New York, and as a daily newspaper reporter also in New York. Um... So what something that I really like about that is that I feel like every time I read about Steinbeck, it seems like he was supporting himself with these kind of odd jobs to be able to basically take in life, I think. Um, and that's really mm-hmm. inspiring to me. Uh, I recently, like, I used to work a lot, like only last year for like a big sort of like faceless corporation where I was doing some video work for them. And... It's just like, I think people like Steinbeck are really inspiring and it gives you sort of a lot of faith in the process that he kind of jumps around to all these different jobs. Like what was happening at that time was he was developing his writing style and took for years, I think it took like five years to be writing Tortilla Flat where he was just doing random jobs that weren't super connected to his literary career. But you see later that that becomes autobiographical in a way. And I don't know, it's just really inspiring to me, I think, to think about how he was, you know, working normal jobs. Um, MSG, though, I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah, that's really crazy. Um, What was he doing there? Yeah, labor building the original Madison Square Garden. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
so you know this guy was just all over the place and i think that that's really inspiring um just like going after his dream but in sort of a roundabout way um later on in the introduction of this book i have a, a penguin modern classics edition which is really nice it's just, just like a little paperback the um it's kind of they kind of explain why um tortilla flat was what put steinbeck on the map like when this novel dropped in 35 it was his most popular work to date for sure and people started really sort of digging it um so i'll go into that a little bit uh who during the years of the great depression couldn't be enchanted by reading tortilla flat for many during the great depression reading and the movies were escape pure and simple escape from grinding poverty escape from worrying about how to pay the rent escape from worrying about how to find a job or keep a menial one even escape from worrying about where money for the next week's groceries would come from um so basically what they're trying to say there and i think that that's a, a great parallel to now is um People were really reading this book. First of all, let me go into the details of Tortilla Flat so that you can understand the context of why people would identify with it so much. Basically, what's happening in Tortilla Flat is there's a group of what Steinbeck calls paisanos. And I'm going to get into a little bit of the controversy behind that statement in a second. Um, because now there's a lot of like sort of Mexican-American and Chicanos that kind of don't like his portrayal of the paisanos and tortilla flat but mm -hmm. if we stick to you know what his vision of the book was basically he talks about this group of jobless local people in a fictional place called tortilla flat which is related to monterey where he grew up and um the main character is this paisano danny who upon returning from a role in world war one he comes back into the great depression and he find out he finds out that the grandfather like the patriarch of his family passed away and left him two houses like two small shacks basically okay and basically he goes from being a person who sleeps in the woods at night and drinks like jug after jug of wine and just kind of like lives life by no rules he gets thrown into being a property like a landowner and he mm. sort of turns his lifestyle from being a paisano and like takes over that capitalist narrative so he like he lets all of his friends he has a big cast of friends like pablo and pylon and uh jesus J uh, jesus or jesus maria and uh the pirate is also another character it's like a homeless guy in the town um and he basically kind of they are very jovial they celebrate life insanely and they basically live by no rules every time they get a little bit of money they spend it on copious amounts of wine and they just get together and like screw around in the town they steal things from people they steal things from people to give to other people um they have a kind of mixed moral code where you're always looking out for number one, but they make gigantic sacrifices just for their friends as well. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, uh, you know, part of the kind of false logic of the plot is, you know, Danny inherits these two houses and he's like, he takes the nicer one. And then to his friend Pylon, he's like, I'll give you the second house, but you have to pay me rent. And then it's immediately understood that that's not 
actually going to happen like they, they just say it <laughs> they just say yeah. it but it means nothing and then eventually when pylon owes danny too much rent because he lets some of his other friends live in there and stuff like that he torches the second property he lights it on fire and then he goes to danny and he's like i don't owe you rent anymore because it like doesn't exist <laughs> so they're very sort of grappling with the idea of what society and capitalism is and and where they fit into it um and how it changes you yeah and how it changes you and and what like what it can do to you um i want to go back a little bit into the controversy around these paisanos so basically when i was reading this book classic sort of white privilege bent i was just thinking okay i'm reading about these bums basically these like i almost feel like they're happy-go-lucky um you know peasants and stuff like that a heavy draw on some steinbeck um stories but also he starts the tradition with this his first novel it has like direct one-to-one parallel parallels between the fables of king arthur so like the knights mm-hmm. of the round table and stuff like that are sort of satirized yeah. here um so a lot of those situations um get you know, put into play, but there's this whole other kind of controversy around his portrayal of Mexican Americans, which I wasn't, you know, really thinking about. I thought I was just reading about these drunken bums, but I really like in the introduction to the um, modern classic Penguin version. I really like um, what they said, where there's just a small paragraph that says Steinbeck's interest in paisanos is in part psychological, the study of group man and in part realistic, the history of a subculture, and finally in part aesthetic, wrestling with the contours of artistic expression. So basically they're saying there's three parts here to his portrayal of the characters. It's a study of people. In part of it, it's realistic. For instance, a lot of people, this is one of those books where a lot of people were like, Steinbeck, you're so awful for making up X, Y, and Z. And his reaction to the press of it was just to be like, oh, those things actually happened. Like they legitimately, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's one of those things where people are outraged about X, Y, and Z. And then he just says, well, from my perspective, that is a true story from me. So I, I kind of think with that three pronged approach that they talk about psychology, history, and aesthetic, I kind of think I can accept into my, into my heart that he wasn't the great at the aesthetic of this kind of taking because there's like he's basically naming a subculture but appropriating it because a lot of people are like oh that that's like not how mexican americans are and his characters are like really harsh with you know betrayals of (laughs) property and morale and stuff like that so there was that reaction to it and steinbeck had some pretty choice words to say about um Basically, when all of this controversy sort of came out, he wrote a an introduction to the book that came out with some of the additions where he was basically just saying, hey, listen, this was an honest portrayal of people that I really adore in the Cal- in the, in the Monterey area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, basically just a preemptive off. strike. Yeah, just kind of saying, like, I think a lot of people took it, again, maybe I'm on this kind of... Uh, this bent with what I was talking about with Paul Beatty and one of our episodes, but um, it's, it, you know, it's this sense of, Oh, this is total satire. And then the author's like, no, it's not, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so one other actual direct quote from, 
The book that I wanted to read is I really just love the spirit of the book when the guy when the group of, you know, paisanos gets together. They are absolutely ridiculous. A lot of really funny stuff happens. For instance, you heard me mention the character of the pirate earlier on. He's a hilarious character that gets followed around by six different dogs and they're all fiercely loyal to him and he basically <laughs> he's the poorest person in the town but he has like a weird equilibrium in his life and um they end up finding out that he's actually one of the richest men in town because he just takes all like the nickels that, and dimes that he makes off people and buries them in the woods <laughs> so it's like this weird sort of um moral purity moral stupidity um reaction to capitalism and stuff like that um i'm gonna read when they get together and drink i really just like this one paragraph it, it kind of stood out to me um two gallons is a great deal of wine even for two paisanos spiritually the jugs may be great graduated thus just below the shoulder of the first bottle, serious and concentrated conversation. Two inches farther down, sweetly sad memory. Three inches more, thoughts of old and satisfactory loves. An inch, thoughts of old and bitter loves. Bottom of the first jug, general and undirected sadness. At the shoulder of the second jug, black, unholy despondency. Two fingers down, <laughs> a song of death or longing. A thumb, every other song each one knows. The graduation stops here, for the trail splits and there is no certainty. From this point on, anything can happen. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, these guys, whenever they get a paper dollar or a few cents, they go and either dick someone over for a few gallons of wine or steal it from the guy who makes it or actually outright buy it. Um <laughs> Have They're you ever just, had a gallon of wine? I've never drank a gallon of wine by myself. Really? No. Um, oh, well, not by yourself, but you had the, like, you know what I'm talking, the uh, yeah. Carlo Rossi sangria yeah. shit. Are you yeah. supposed to drink it with your elbow? <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to yeah, tip it back on your elbow, like one of those ancient yeah. bottles. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I mean, stuff. that... It's just that culture of, you know, they're going to do what they want to do. I really love the... Um, the chapter titles for the final there's been a few published versions i think the first one didn't have as colorful chapter titles but the chapter titles here are really great i love that um to me it always reminds me of voltaire you know the the sort of um the chapter titles well for instance the first chapter in this book is how danny home from the wars found himself an heir and how he swore to protect the helpless so it's oh, that nice, like it's you candied. know yeah candide yeah yeah like those i love those chapter titles where you know like another one a few chapters away is how the friends solaced a corporal and in return received a lesson in paternal ethics <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then it goes on to be like it's like about, the uh, it's like the mice it's the mice and babe yes absolutely the mice and babe. <laughs> um yeah, so, I mean, it's always just these ups and downs. Sometimes they're ridiculously poor. Sometimes they're actually doing really well. Um, there's a few funny scenes where, you know, the group of guys are like, oh, no, we have to, like, get money really fast. What are we going to do? And then they end up doing, like, a real job down at, like, the docks for a day. And it's, like, the most that they, you know, it's like, oh, my God, we worked for four hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, like, the most thing. They, they, it's, like, the most they can handle. Um, yeah. So it's really cool. 
I also think that there are some themes of sort of like addiction and anxiety in this book because Danny, the main character, um, has some pretty wild fluctuations between his new lifestyle and his old lifestyle. For instance, when he first inherits the two homes, he immediately spends the night in the woods. He doesn't look at the houses at first. He just gets a gallon of wine and goes sleeps under the stars. And he's not ready um, for it yet. He's not ready for it. But I also think there's some weird kind of interesting, um, you know, this cast of characters gets together. It's pretty funny. It's like an ensemble piece. And then there's also a big chunk of the book where Danny disappears because he basically just says, screw this. You know, like this lifestyle is thrust yeah. upon him and he's and he like goes crazy. And then at least I think it's like about 75 percent towards the end of the book he starts to almost like he like loses it again where he starts to like um, terrorize the town with crimes and stuff like that and um it's really interesting he he kind of has these almost like uh manic depressive sort of episodes where he's partying and like kind of screwing around with his friends and then he's also um he also is really kind of freaking out and committing crimes and stealing stuff and all that kind of what goes with that. So mm-hmm. I wanted to read something that's like almost a full page. This is towards the end of the book. So Danny goes on a massive bender. He gets like in trouble with the police and stuff like that. And his friends are basically like, dude, Danny is like on an unholy binge. Like he's just super <laughs> wasted for like days on end. And, uh, Oh, another thing that's like a little kind of nod to the great depression is, they get arrested a lot on purpose in this book and it's because that's like a bit of a reference to the great depression like some people would commit crimes just to have a roof just over get a, their head a meal yeah, yeah. so they would get like three a day or whatever and yeah. um so that was happening as well but it's taken in a, in a light-hearted sense which i think is what people enjoyed um for that escapism that they mentioned in the introduction so this is almost towards the end of the book where um pablo and pylon two of the paisano crew they break off from a massive party that the entire town is throwing for Danny because everyone loves him, even though he's like a scoundrel. So basically his friends get together and say, listen, we want to throw like a rager to end Danny's like reign of terror. Cause if he comes and parties with us, then we know everything's going to be fine. So the whole town, <laughs> the whole town arranges like this party for Danny and they have to go find him. They like, don't know where he is cause he's on this massive bender. So, um, I'm just going to read it from, from there. Um, Pablo did not mention it then, but ever afterwards it was his custom, when Danny was mentioned, to describe what he saw as he and Pylon walked out on the wharf toward Danny. There he stood, Pablo always said. I could just see him, leaning on the rail. I looked at him, and then I saw something else. At first it looked like a black cloud in the air over Danny's head. And then I saw it was a big black bird, as big as a man. It hung in the air like a hawk over a rabbit hole. I crossed myself and said two Hail Marys. The bird was gone when we came to Danny. Pylon did not see it. Moreover, Pylon did not remember Pablo crossing himself and saying the Hail Marys, but he never interfered with the story, for it was Pablo's story. They walked rapidly toward Danny. The wharf boards drummed hollowly under their feet. Danny did not turn. They took him by the arms and turned him around. Danny, what's wrong? Nothing. I'm all right. Are you sick, Danny? No. Then what is it that makes you so sad? I don't know, said Danny. I just feel this way. I don't want to do anything. Maybe a doctor could do something for you, Danny. I tell you I'm not sick. 
Then look, Pylon cried, we're having a party for you at your house. Everybody in Tortilla Flat is there, and music and wine and chicken. There are maybe 20 or 30 gallons of wine and bright paper hanging up. Don't you want to come? Danny breathed deeply. For a moment, he turned back to the deep black water. Perhaps he whispered to the gods, a promise or a defiance. He swung around again to his friends. His eyes were feverish. You're goddamn right I want to go. Hurry up, I'm thirsty. Are there any girls there? So, I mean, I basically see Danny as somebody who is sort of struggling with a new role in life thrust upon him. And, um, but there's, there's just so much hilarity involved that only those dark moments are pretty few and far between and everything else is pretty hilarious stories of them, like, you know, stealing goats and chickens and, um, right back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Right back to it. So it has those dark dips, um, it also has its fair share, like you'll find most reviewers kind of commenting that it's pretty sexist as hell. Like there's a lot of situations where the Paisanos, they'll go into, you know, a house or something and they'll like, it happens all the time. Like the guy who makes wine for the town, he has him and his wife live in the house and make the wine. And basically it will just kind of say glaze over in one sense. It'll be like the Paisanos went there. They had fun with the guy's wife and took the wine and then they went back, you know, like it's sort of glossed over in that way. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's pretty intense. Um, but so does he ever, does Danny ever succumb to one side or the other? Does he kind of toe the line the whole time? Like, is he a full, does he ever go full capitalist or does he ever just go full anarchy? It's both. Where does he like end up? he he there is one part of the book where he starts to like shack up with one woman consistently and his friends are like, "Holy crap, like what's happening? Like we don't know what to do." And he's never at the house anymore and stuff like that, but I don't think it's not really declarative that he goes one way or the other. I mean, he he kind of brightens up and goes to that party um but it's it's a little bit unconclusive whether he's going to accept either lifestyle. Okay. Um, so yeah, there. I also found a really good review from The Guardian by Sam Jordans, Jordison on, in 2017. He wrote um, a pretty decent like short essay for The Guardian about Tortilla Flat, but I thought it was cool. He mentioned that he um, read it twice. So, and basically was saying enamored during the first read, but on the second read could see what people were saying in terms of like, you think that the Paisanos are like happy go lucky, but really they're sort of like a negative portrayal, um, which I mean, Steinbeck might be the person to say that he didn't intend that. I mean, his review, his introduction to the book of one of those editions was very sort of, um, you know, leave me alone about my book. It's just like a tr almost true story about my life. But um, I'll read the last few paragraphs of um, Sam Jordison's review because I thought it was it was pretty good. So okay. this, the second reading also brought its compensations. I wasn't as spellbound as I was before. Sometimes the book seemed crude and silly. And I wouldn't be a Guardian journalist if I hadn't worried about its sexual politics and the few horrible moments of casual racism. But I also saw new depths. Then, I mainly saw the book as a funny celebration of life outside the mainstream. Now, I couldn't help thinking that while Steinbeck wanted to deny that his characters were bums, he doesn't celebrate their lives quite as wholeheartedly as he, as he suggests in that 1937 foreword. 
Similarly, while the book may, or as Thomas Finch says, have offered escapism and entertainment during the Great Depression, it also has sadness at its heart. It is not, as some suggested, a happy book with a surprisingly tragic ending. It's one that pushes inevitably towards darkness. Right from the start, Danny is on the run from responsibility, horrified by the idea of house ownership, settling down, or even living within the constraints of the law. His friends help him distract and shelter him from reality, but cannot keep him from it forever. Clocks may be eschewed in tortilla flat, but time marches on. Danny is still aging, and now I've gone through more of my own journey into adulthood, I saw his fears more clearly. I also felt I had a better understanding of his tragedy. As a younger reader, I understood the sadness of the book's final chapters and Danny's decision to fly roaring into the depths of the gulch near his house. But my older self also knows what he'd be missing thanks to that decision. It gave the book a poignancy I hadn't felt before. Even if Danny is a bum, he's also a complex and haunted man. A little so, spoiler there. Little spoiler. That's gave where I was a, curious about where where he ends up. Yeah, nah, gave you a I little bit of a spoiler, but um, yeah. So I mean, that's that's basically Tortilla Flat, um, a really great book, really funny. It came to me by way of um, Mark knows someone. Mark and I know someone named Ben Kajowski, who is a director that I work with, and he was a fan of Tortilla. Flat. He's like. You know, it's one of those things where if you like what you like, then it's it's a really good fit. And um, this is a really interesting Steinbeck as well because it's not laden with heavy symbolism. It's not nearly as serious. It's sort of a group of of rascals and and what Steinbeck can bring to that. And and it has. I, I think I like. Maybe I have this groove of liking early authors when they're not completely themselves yet, but. Tortilla Flat <laughs> yeah. has it has like some really beautiful descriptions of the California nature and stuff like that 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 books like Grapes of Wrath have and and you know he drops lines in there where it's just like wow yeah he's he's about to become really good. Oh yeah, he paints pictures for sure. Yeah. So I got to say you said the title of the book so many times that it's making me hungry. And tortilla flat. <laughs> I picture a crunch wrap supreme. A crunch It's just the shelves of the of the California countryside made of crunch wrap okay. supremes. But yeah, it's actually yeah. ironic that tortilla flat. It's called tortilla flat because it's not a flat. They all live in the hills, the California countryside <laughs> hills. So that's also funny. Nice. Cool. So now it's Mark's turn. All right. So, uh, you know that I like to be dramatic. <laughs> yeah, hold so, back the title for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, all right. I want to start with an absolute truth, which is that human beings are flawed. Okay. Uh, we say and do stupid things repeatedly. Uh, we forget. We neglect. We're easily distracted. We have grand plans that fizzle out somewhere along the way um we're kind of dumb uh trevor do you remember when you ran over your foot with your own car <laughs> yes mark was there <laughs> embarrassing life fact mark was there the night that i ran myself over with my own car how do you how do you do that <laughs> i wasn't gonna make you expand on it uh, <laughs> just 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 a point a story you know, for people can be time. dumb humans are flawed. a lot of dumb things over yes yeah 
we don't have to get into that. Yeah, um, my I point is, you know, go into some of the dumb things <laughs> you've done. No, <laughs> no, I'm moving on. My point is, we've got problems. You know, we've always had problems. People throughout history, people have been greedy. People have been spiteful, stubborn, uh, self-involved. You know, people in power more so. Um, world history is filled with characters that are stranger and more fascinating than fiction. Like uh, Attila the Hun, Alexander the Great, Cleopatra, and so on. Mm. Um, but the history books that most of us are familiar with only tell us of their major accomplishments, you know, highlights. Uh, but doesn't that stand to reason that they were also flawed? Mm. Um, so they're they're written about as you know stoic, almost all-knowing kind of figures. But what's lost are, are their dumb moments. Their mm -hmm. odd decisions, you know, their uh, MTV Cribs esque displays of vanity or wealth. <laughs> um, but so, so probably since the turn of the 20th century, you know, we've been made more and more aware of these sort of odd things or these um, negative, dumb, stupid things. You know, it's very public now. Uh, world leaders are under a microscope and sometimes they, you know, volunteer their stupidity. Uh, everyone knows what's going on in America right now. Um, I don't know where that started, probably with the 24-hour news cycle. But, you know, there's more scandal than ever. Mm. And not much gets past the public eye in that respect. Um, but, you know, all that kind of shit happened in the past, too. You know, there wasn't <laughs> Twitter. There wasn't Internet. But, you know, those historical figures we learn about, they've been lionized by history they've been painted in a flattering light uh but there's a lot of dumb stuff we never got to read about and find out <laughs> what they did uh but we are fortunate that a man by the name of will cuppy did some research for us okay will cuppy. <laughs> so will cuppy he's an american author william jacob cuppy mm -hmm. american author who lived from 1884 to 1949 and he was a hermit. Uh, he was born in Indiana, but lived most of his life on Long Island uh, and in uh, an apartment in Greenwich Village. Hmm. So he was a uh, New so York City served. hermit? Yes, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> in a shack in Long Island and then some uh, noisy apartment in Greenwich Village. Um, so a little bit about him. He served a little while in World War I. Um, Eventually, he began contributing book reviews to the New York Tribune. Mm -hmm. um, in 1926, he started his own column called Light Reading, uh, later renamed Mystery and Adventure, for the New York Herald Tribune. Mm -hmm. uh, so he wrote that column in, for 23 years until his death. So he reviewed like uh, more than 4,000 crime and detective fiction novels. Whoa, okay. So... The unique thing about Will Cuppy is that he did exhaustive research before he wrote about anything. He, uh, his friends said he would read 25 thick-ass books on a subject before he even started writing a single word. Hmm. Um, so he was always shacked up in wherever he was, and he worked from note cards. All of his writing started with three by five inch index cards, and he would put together hundreds or thousands of these for short articles or his um, 
novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the book I have today is his probably his most famous work. It's called The Decline and Fall of Practically Everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a play on uh, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by right. English historian Edward Gibbon from the late 1700s. Mm-hmm. Um, so Cuppy had been working on this book on and off for 16 years. Um, he, and he died before finishing it. But just mm-hmm. after he died, his friend Fred Feldkamp sifted through about 15,000 of his uh, three by five note cards to get Cuppy's, you know, his life work into print. Whoa, so it's like so, one of his best friends sort of like brought it back from the dead. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the result here is uh, absolutely hilarious, but, you know, extremely factual text on some of history's most well-known figures. Okay. Um, so he did exhaustive research. He uncovered and aggregated some amazing information here for the sole purpose of mocking some of history's biggest names. Cool. So, okay. Okay. I'm really curious so, to know who is in it. Uh, I'll go through a list from the... So what it is basically is the book is a bunch of little uh, four or five, six page chapters, and they each cover one person from history. So he's got... Uh, I'll, I'll go briefly from the, the table of contents. We got Pericles, Alexander the Great... Hannibal, Cleopatra, Nero, Attila the Hun, Charlemagne, Lady Godiva, uh, Louis the Fourteenth, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, Frederick the Great, William the Conqueror, Henry the Eighth, uh, George the Third, Christopher Columbus. Um, so wait, can I ask if George well, the Fourth is in there? Let me see. Sorry, like I'm sorry to interrupt your thing but i'm obsessed with george no nope, george the third george okay, the third still was gonna, still dumber gonna... than george the fourth no he definitely <laughs> wasn't i'm gonna i'm gonna look that i don't know there. this guy this guy seemed to know um <laughs> but turns out you know all those people did some dumb things mm-hmm. they all and you know they left a lot of they left a trail of bodies on the way too this book probably has the biggest body count of anything i've ever read <laughs> just because all these people you know alexander the great slaughtered many many people um, so it's a bunch of short chapters. Each covers one historical figure. I want to jump in and just read my favorite chapter, which is the chapter on Hannibal. Okay. So I have gone through and, and cut out some things and made it so I could kind of read the whole chapter. Okay. Ready? Absolutely. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher a lot of names here because there's a lot of strange names but yeah man that's what that's one of the reasons why i'm pretty afraid to do uh proust because i'm i'm like yeah like oh. <laughs> you know like the names are just gonna butcher them so bad okay so all right let's see how i do <laughs> rome and carthage were the most important cities in the world around 300 bc rome was where it always was and carthage was on the north coast of africa they had been neighbors for years without having a good fight so it was only a question of time the romans and carthaginians were very different in character and temperament. The Carthaginians had no ideals. All they wanted was money and helling around and having a big time. The Romans were stern and dignified, living hard, frugal lives and adhering to the traditional Latin virtues, gravitas, pietas, simplicitas, and adultery. (laughs) Carthage was governed by its rich men and was therefore a plutocracy. 
Rome was also governed by its rich men and was therefore a republic. The Romans were a nation of homebodies. When they bestirred themselves at all, it was only to go and kill some other Italians. Though they were too polite to say so, they thought it would be pleasant to own the Carthaginian part of Sicily too. Meanwhile, the Carthaginians grew richer and richer by peddling linens, woolen goods, dye stuffs, glassware, porcelains, metalwork, household supplies, porch furniture, and novelties all along the Mediterranean. They used a system of barter to start with, but they soon found out that there's nothing like money. So pretty soon there was a war that went on for 24 years, from 256 BC to 241 BC. It was called the First Punic War. When it was over, the Romans had the Carthaginian part of Sicily and about $4 million in damages. Later, they seized Sardinia and Corsica just for the fun of it. And then there was lasting peace for 22 years. That brings us to Hamilcar, the great Carthaginian general who did so much to lose the First Punic War. He must not be confused with the other Carthaginian general of the same name in the same war, nor with the four earlier and later Hamilcars. He hated the Romans something awful, as they had marooned him on top of a mountain in Sicily for several years and made him look very silly. Back home in Carthage, he would gather his family around him, and they would all hate the Romans until they almost burst. This was foolish of them, for hatred shows on your face, and the people you hate remain just as horrid as ever. They don't care one bit. They're too mean to care. Hamilcar had three sons, Hannibal, Hadrasbal, and Mago. When his son Hannibal was nine years old, Hamilcar took him into the Temple of Baal and made him swear eternal hatred against the Romans in addition to his homework. The boy already had two wrinkles right between the eyes from hating the Romans. He finally became the most prominent hater in history and just one mass of wrinkles. Hamilcar <laughs> also told Hannibal about elephants and how you must always have plenty of these animals to scare the enemy. He attributed much of his own success to elephants and believed they would have won the First Punic War for him if things hadn't gone slightly haywire, for the war had turned into a naval affair. But even when the fighting was on land, the Romans did not scare nearly so well as expected. The Romans had learned about elephants while pi fighting Pyrrhus, whose elephants defeated him in 275 BC, and even before that, in Alexander's time, King Porus had been undone by his own elephants. Thus, if history had taught any one thing up to that time, it was never to use elephants in war. Don't ask me why Hamilcar did not see this. The Carthaginian elephants were trained to rush forward and trample the Romans, but only too frequently they would rush backward and trample the, Carth the Carthaginians. <laughs> if this happened to you, wouldn't you notice? And wouldn't you do something about it? Then Hamilcar went to Spain, where he spent eight years in perfecting his plans, and was drowned in 228 BC while crossing a stream with a herd of elephants. <laughs> Hadrasbal the Handsome, who took his place, was assassinated a few years later, leaving the command to Hannibal, now 26 and well-versed in his father's routine. Hannibal left Spain in 218 BC and crossed the Alps into Italy in 15 days with a large army and 37 elephants, thus establishing a record for crossing the Alps with elephants and starting the Second Punic War. Taking elephants across the Alps is not as much fun as it sounds. The Alps are difficult enough when alone, and elephants are peculiarly fitted for not crossing them. Believe it or not, all the elephants survived the journey, although about half of the soldiers perished. Historians state that Hannibal seemed insensitive to fatigue throughout the ordeal. He was riding on an elephant. Nor did he ever give way to despair. Whenever a thousand or so of his men would fall off an Alp, he would tell the rest to cheer up. The elephants were all right. If someone had given him a shove at the right moment, much painful history might have been avoided, 
It's the little things that count. Hannibal split the huge alpine rocks with vinegar to break a path for the elephants. Vinegar was a high explosive in 218 BC, but not before or since. The number of Hannibal's elephants, 37, is said by Polybius to have been inscribed by Hannibal's own hand on a brazen plate in Italy. Polybius read it himself, yet a modern historian has recently given the figure as 40, perhaps from a natural tendency to deal in round numbers. Elephants do not come in round numbers. You have one elephant or three or 37. Is that clear, Professor? Hannibal expected to get more elephants that he had left in Spain with his brother Hadrisbal, but the Romans cut the supply line. During his 15 years in Italy, Hannibal never had enough elephants to suit him. Most of the original group succumbed to the climate, and he was always begging Carthage for more. The people at home were stingy. They would ask if they thought they were made of elephants and what he had done with the elephants they sent before. <laughs> Sometimes, when he hadn't an elephant to his name, he would manage to wrangle a few from somewhere, a feat which strikes me as his greatest claim to our attention. Like his father before him, Hannibal never noticed that he made much more progress without any elephants at all. We hear nothing of them at the Battle of T the Ticino, and there was only a few at Trebia. The last one died before the Battle of Tresemine, where Hannibal simply erased the Romans for the time being. Hannibal was again fresh out of elephants at Cannae, the greatest of his victories in the first three years of Italian campaign. I have a theory about Hannibal's failure to take Rome when he had the chance after Cannae and his strange inactivity for the next dozen years, when he only held out and nothing more. He was waiting for something. His brother Hadrisbal reached Italy with 10 elephants in 207 BC, but they behaved so badly that they had to be killed by their own side, and Hannibal never even saw them. Carthage was sent 40 more after a while. They were shipped to Sardinia by mistake. So Hannibal went home where he could get what he wanted. At Zama, the final showdown of the Second Punic War, fought near Carthage in 203 BC, he had his way at last. He placed 80 elephants in the front line of battle. They turned on the Carthaginians, and Scipio Africanus did the rest. Hannibal never succeeded in his efforts to stir up another war. The Carthaginians were tired of it all. He tried to interest Antiochus the Great of Syria in a scheme involving elephants and was forced to flee from Carthage when the Romans demanded his person. He then wandered through Asia for years, finally taking refuge with Prusius, king of Bithynia, the only true friend he had left in the world. One day, he discovered that Prusius had notified the Romans to come and get him. He took poison, dying at the age of 64, 19 years after Zama. Whether Hannibal was a truly great man or only middling, which is my, my own view, each of us must decide for himself. The Romans accused him of treachery, or Punic faith, for constantly drawing them into traps and killing them. They expected him to behave according to the classic rules of warfare, and they found they could not depend on him. I have not dwelt in much detail upon his military virtues, as they are obvious enough. I have merely endeavored to point out what I believe to have been one of his weaknesses as a strategist and tacticians, but I don't suppose it will do any good. Some people will never learn. Hannibal was no gift to the ladies. Some say he had a wife in Spain. If so, she was lost in the shuffle and nobody took her place. Seems the right girl never came along. That's about all we know of his private life. Oh well, we can be fairly certain at least that he hated the Romans to his dying day because he had promised his father to do so. And he probably believed up to the very end that everything might still come out right if only he had a few you-know-whats. As Carthage grew prosperous again, the Romans besieged it from 149 BC to 146 BC. They finally broke in, massacred the inhabitants, plundered the city, burned it to the ground, and planted grass where it used to be. I thought you'd like to know how it all came out. <laughs> so. <laughs> I love his little, like, sassy side sentences. So the part about that, 
the side sentences are all footnotes. This guy developed a narrative voice that somehow includes comedic timing in text. Like, it's it's amazing. <laughs> so, like, comedic timing is totally a thing. You know, you sometimes you need, like, a little pause before the punchline. Right, so he's taking the physical form of the book and making you yes. look, yeah. In the second, in, like, the second and a half it takes you to bring your eyes down to the, mm-hmm. to the footnote, it's perfect. Like, right. <laughs> that's where Drum, he hits you with all this bombs. biting little sarcasm, yeah. That's awesome. So, um... That was a long chapter, but I want to read um, some quick hits. I got a couple of them. So that I'm, was I'm really well. I, I, the that was really like it was interesting how he like found this weird fact about the elephants. Like he's waiting on like elephants and stuff. It reminds me yeah. of um, there's this really good. There's like a short film or a film that's about kevin smith like giving talks basically like he gives like ted talks you know the director of clerks silent bob and Mm -hmm. um there's this really good one that he tells sorry i'm like derailing your thing but like there's this really good one there's this really good one that he tells about um and i swear it's related to the elephants thing he tells (laughs) he tells a um story about this producer that he worked with where he was gonna make like one of the superman movies but it ended up like not happening this was really early days before like marvel even so they wanted kevin smith to make a superhero movie uh a superman movie and he was working with this producer who kept like sort of insisting that superman fight a giant spider like, he was, like, he wants him to do, like, a giant spider. And Smith was sort of, like, I don't know, like, like Superman, like, isn't really, like, it's not down with, like, these, sp- like, giant creatures and stuff and whatever. And he was, like, it's not really, it ended up not happening, which happens in those big Hollywood films every second of the day. You yeah, know, just and they like, used it in Wild yeah. Wild West. Yeah, yeah, and then that same producer, yeah. <laughs> Wait, did really? You see? No, I'm, uh, I'm <laughs> no. You didn't know that? No, no, I'm just, that's the only giant spider I know. Dude, what the fuck? You call you you just <laughs> predicted the future. You just predicted the future. Yeah, that's basically he ends the speech by being like, yeah, that same producer ended up working on Wild Wild <laughs> West, and like that movie just has a stupid giant spider that comes out of nowhere at the end. Yeah, and you know, so you it's get like a little power. That's what it reminds <laughs> me of the elephant guy, where he's just like, I'm like waiting on these elephants that trample my front line, but I don't care. Um, yeah, you're just adamant, so adamant that you have it, so stubborn. Yeah, it's so funny. Okay, yeah. So continue. You wanted to do some quick shots. Yeah, yeah. I got a, I got a one paragraph on uh, Pericles. Mm-hmm. It just gives you another idea of how this guy wrote, how it all reads, and everything. So Pericles was Pericles was the greatest statesman of ancient Greece. He ruled Athens for more than thirty years in his most glorious period, from 461 BC to 429 BC. Or rather, the people ruled, for Athens was a democracy. At least that's what Pericles said it was. He only told them what to do. Pericles was called the Olympian because of his wisdom and eloquence. He was also called Squillhead, or Conehead, because his head resembled a squill, or sea onion, a cone-shaped vegetable found in those parts. The Greek comedians made many jests about the unusual shape of Pericles' head. (laughs) So, you know, it's all these facts sandwiched in by some shit that's pretty funny to think about yeah yeah i mean it was just openly mocked totally so uh here is one from the chapter about nero who was the first century roman emperor in some respects nero was ahead of his time 
he boiled his drinking water to remove the impurities and cooled it with unsanitary ice to put them back in again. He renamed, <laughs> he renamed the month of April after himself, calling it Neronius, but the idea never caught on because April is not Neronius and there is no use pretending that it is. During his reign of 14 years, the outlying provinces are said to have prospered. They were farther away. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that about? Uh, Nero. Oh. First century Roman emperor. <laughs> they were farther away. Or something like that. <laughs> That's awesome. The, yeah, the same concept, I've, I've kind of felt the same way that you're thinking of. You know how in the beginning you were saying, like, oh, we get... It's really hard to live in your own time, I think, you know, because you think that everything is unique and, like, the comedy yeah. of life is, like, you know, uh, you know, authority is, you know, black is white, up is down, and stuff like that, and it's like... I I got that same feeling that you're talking about from reading um, Francois Rabelais. Did I ever show him mm -hmm. to you? The guy who yeah, writes I about know the about giants. Him. So yeah, yeah, he writes about like it's giants very vulgar. and stuff. Very vulgar. And he was like a 15th or 16th century monk or whatever. And when you read, you know, he makes like, you know, uh, a lot of like shit and piss jokes and stuff like that. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> And, like, the way he describes politicians and how things come together and, and the satire of it all is just like, dude, it's always been the same. It's the same thing with um, Candide. Mm -hmm. Like, Candide to me is, you know, you know, it's, it makes you feel that way, that life has always been ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. So most of the time, like, what we read in school was, you know, nothing there was never a laugh in there, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of dumb stuff that happened. And, um, I appreciate the alternate the, kind of, this author know. sounds like he would be like the best history teacher. Yeah. Yeah. It would make history class way more interesting if, you know, there was some, you could, you know, have a little entertainment there too. Hey man, I had to still learning stuff. When I went to Eastern Connecticut state university, I can't believe I'm giving a shout out to ECSU, but, um, I I didn't like the school, but I did like this one class that I had. I took Northern European history with um, this professor that was, I forget his name now, and I'm really sorry that I forget his name, but he was just off the walls. Like you were, you were reading about like Vikings and the definite, like trying to define what the Celts are and stuff like that. And just reading all these different source texts and stuff, but he was hilarious. Like, nice. he, he always brought up, like, I have all these weird books on my bookshelf, like, um, there's one called The Moby Nogi, which is, like, an, an original Irish fairy tale and stuff like that, and the, 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 the bull of Toyn or whatever, the, like, the bull or something like that, like, all these mm -hmm. really weird kind of original texts, and the guy just made it so funny, and there's, like, there's some really funny stuff in there, like, the legends of the golden ass and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, I have that. Yeah, so the, <laughs> it's like all that stuff, which is just so funny. Nice. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, the decline and fall of practically everybody. Um, I, ha I do have to say, so the book is really funny, but, you know, it's, it was written in the 30s. Like, some of the jokes don't land. There's some really tired humor in it as well. Uh, <laughs> there's some just stupid-ass misogynistic jokes that aren't funny at all um <laughs> but you know most of it most of the rest of it translates pretty well and is still you know funny even though it was made so long ago 
Yeah, it sounds like a really unique book. I feel like you keep bringing like these books where I like never heard of it and like you know whatever. I'm like bringing like the the John Steinbeck, but you have all these like <laughs> awesome books. Uh, yeah, I definitely want to check that book out, especially the thing about George the Third. I might even have you like oh, send that to yeah. me or something. Yeah, but, it rocks. Um, I, I found it randomly. Um, wasn't looking for it at all. Okay. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. Well, it's got a. It, it's one of those really gra- funny. grabbing titles. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got some, uh, it, it's of course got some nice little cartoon drawings in it too. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it would fit like right on the bookshelf next to like some Douglas Adams. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. What is it like? So there, there's some other kind of comedy history books, but I forget. Uh, I don't know. Satirical history. In a weird way, like brief history. Yeah. The one about this is, is like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, this one was a satire, but it's also, like, just exhaustively researched. And, you know, a lot of it was facts that maybe one ancient text had talked Mm -hmm. about, but he, you know, compiled them all together. He's one of those those guys where it's, like, easy to admire. He's like a monk, you know? Oh, he's living up on the mountain in his apartment in New York City, crammed with genius. Um, Yeah. But in actuality, his life was probably, like, agonizing <laughs> yeah it was terrible he um he did commit suicide in his in his apartment exactly he oh was God. broke and sick and oh yeah God. wow okay that's awful there's a but, great uh, quote from it's just on the wikipedia uh from one of his friends so although cuppy was reclusive and cultivated the image of a curmudgeon he had many friends in new york's literary circles one of them was the poet william rose benet who, writing in the Saturday Review of Literature, penned this remembrance of him, which is, he had the haunted look of a true humorist. All his friends loved him. Hmm. Yeah, I've been actually, it's funny that this comes up now, because I've been really interested in sort of um, figures that influence the scene, but they aren't part of the scene. So, like, do you know who Neil Cassidy is? No. Neil Cassidy is, like, a guy who inspired jack kerouac to write on the road but he was also friends with um like ginsburg and um a few other like major american authors yeah and he was like just basically like a psychotic guy who drove like a crate like crazy and like went all he he was like that the the beat generation of on the road of like crossing crisscrossing the country every few months just because you can um yeah that like he was that guy so he was you know it sounds like you know this guy who who published who his friend published his book he was an influencer but he wasn't you know like if you look up neil cassidy it's like he's in he's literally in you know five or six great american novels but he never published anything oh (laughs) so he's like you know he was like in this scene but the only thing that's published is like posthumous. I think maybe he did like poems while he was alive or something like that, but he was really off the walls and inspired so much. Nice. Mm. Oh, would you have one more thing to note? Yeah, Will Cuppy. He uh, wrote some other novels too, or other other books sort of like this. I wouldn't. We were actually talking about if we were going to do nonfiction last week, and so yeah, yeah, I did the first nonfiction today. But he wrote um, he wrote a book called How to Be a Hermit. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And he also wrote a book kind of like this, but making fun of animals, uh, called How to Attract the Wombat. 
Yeah. That one's pretty good, too. <laughs> what a title. I think I've heard of that one. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, we're just, we're about at an hour and 10 minutes, so we filled our time. Um, hopefully, bigger and greater things to come for this podcast, uh, because we've done a few episodes now, and I feel like we're... We haven't quit doing them yet, so that's a good sign. Uh, we can yeah. pretend that we have a, a An producer audience. who's yeah. here with us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we should get we should get like a preloaded computer voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. No. Uh, well, that's pretty much it. Thanks everyone for listening. This has been Shitty Book Reports. Uh, you can catch us on SoundCloud, Instagram, Twitter, iTunes, pretty much everywhere at sbr the podcast you can also email us sbr the podcast at gmail.com send us uh, criticisms corrections maybe some books that you want to hear us talk about um and we'll catch you next time see ya